The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. I stick to paths, the known paths, a little bit more frequently, which results in less scratches, but also less adventure. It does deprive one of, like I said, a little adventure, but aside from adventure, going off known pathways can bring about some curiosities. You can stumble at some point, but clearly it's part of a bygone era. Have you ever found something like that that you didn't expect to find out in the middle of of nowhere? In all such discoveries throughout time, it can be unknown to the discoverer as to how the thing came to be there. This is our human limitation. We don't have perfect knowledge of times past and how things came to be. And it's something that just kind of slips through time into oblivion. And it can become, like I said, just a mere curiosity. But if all that is found a hundred years later is just this hunk of metal or a frame, we can just be left scratching our heads unless we do some actual investigative work to say, why is it there? And as we approach Genesis 38 today, This morning, it can be like that, a similar experience of the Bible reader. I mean, this passage seems to come out of almost nowhere. Like, where does this come from, and why is it here in this place, in the inspired Word of God? Well, it is a gift for us. This is part of God's plan, and and God's Word is fully sufficient to teach us, so we spend time looking and saying, what is it that God wants to reveal, the creator God, about himself, the very author of scripture, through this passage? Through the scriptures, we know God's plan of salvation. Paul reminded Timothy of this. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, he says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood, so he's talking to Timothy, you have, acqu- you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The book of Genesis is one of the sacred writings that Timothy would have been familiar with. And what's in these sacred writings? These are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. The ancient writings. And with that, we know that Genesis 38 can't be truly out of place. It's part of God's plan, part of God's design. However, without doing the investigative work to see where it fits in, it can easily just kind of slip through and pass by as a curiosity of some bygone era. But worse than this, and maybe you've had this experience talking to other people that have read the Bible and they say, well, what is this all about? I've had people ask me about Genesis 38. 
And they can be abhorred by it. They can be abhorred by such a story and even abhorred that the God of the Bible would somehow be responsible for these types of things taking place. But if we take God seriously, church, we cannot abhor the word of God. Nor can we dismiss it. We must meditate upon it. Upon the whole counsel of God's word as the treasure that it is. And it's revealing more about who he is and it's for us to be blessed through his revealed plan of redemption. And to be effective in our look at scripture, we always begin with context. When Genesis 38 is placed in such close proximity to Genesis 37, where Joseph was sold into slavery last week by his brothers, where deceit was at work, and then the destruction of one another. It was clearly bent that there was destruction planned for Joseph, and that by his brothers, for personal gain. And that was just thrust upon us this last week. And now we... we, We pivot away from that, and and we're left in this place of suspension, wanting to know more about Joseph and what becomes of him. But the inspired author of Scripture pivots away from Joseph in order for us to take a look at Judah in this, this chapter, in order to remind us that there is a larger effect that God is going for in all of Scriptures. There's a larger movement that's underway. And Joseph is integral to the plan of redemption that God's working out. And his character, even as Ray preached last week, is in direct contrast with some of the more scoundrels that we find in the scriptures. And Judah, as what we know of him so far, would fit into that category, somewhat of a scoundrel. But God is using both men. He's using both men and their lives as part of his redemptive plan. Today, church, we're going to see wickedness. We're going to see deception. We're going to see desperation. And these acts of deception are meant to preserve what is left of the household of Judah. Acts of desperation meant to bring about some reprieve from a life of loneliness by Tamar. You may identify and say, that's all I can do right now. All I can do is act out of my desperation. Or maybe the truth is not adequate to accomplish my desire, so I'll use deception to get my way. When caught up in this, we don't adequately rationalize our actions. Rather, we hastily justify them because we see no other way. And so we elevate expediency as a higher value than what we should, what's provided for us. But no matter what or how deceptive or uh, desperate we may be, no matter how we may work to get our way, the gift that we're going to behold in this chapter is that the Lord is undetoured. The Lord is undetoured by our sin. For he dealt with it all. He dealt with it all in Christ. We are going to work through this passage if I were to take a poll of preachers, I would say it's probably pretty low down there on the, on the rank of passages that preachers would want to preach through. But we're going to work through it, and uh, we're going to cover it in three chunks. The first one is undetoured and evil pursuits. So we're going to see how, 
how Judah is undetoured in his evil pursuits, and then undetoured to receive her rights, how Tamar, she, she's going to be undeterred. And then we're going to finish up with undetoured to direct all his glory. We're going to focus then on what God is doing. Undetoured to direct all for his glory. So beginning first with undetoured and evil pursuits. We have been witnessing through the book of Genesis that when man is left to his own devices, he spins himself down into this, this kind of uh, debauchery of just always turning away from God when he's left to his own devices. He does this and he pursues what is evil. It's only when God intervenes on behalf of man that man's evil is countered by God's good. It's only when God intervenes on behalf of man that God's good overcomes that propensity for evil. So I'm going to read again the first portion of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. So this is where Judah finds a wife. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onam. Yet again she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so... Whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And when he did what, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And if you'll remember, church, Judah is Jacob's fourth son. He is the, the fourth son, and along with his brothers in the last chapter, they decided to kill Joseph, the young half-brother, the dreamer. Then later, Judah came up with a plan like, well, let's not kill him, let's sell him. Let's get some kind of a reward from this guy and sell him into slavery instead. So Judah, what I'm trying to say, is firmly on this downward spiral that I was talking about that we see happening when someone is not walking with the Lord in, in Genesis. He's left to his own devices. He's spinning himself downward into debauchery with his evil pursuits. And in this chapter, we learn some more about Judah as he's walking in this path undetoured in his evil pursuits. He takes a Canaanite wife. She bears him three sons, we see. 
His oldest son is ready to marry, so he facilitates that. He finds a wife for his oldest son, Ur. He finds Tamar. But with the, ch- the character of Judah clearly on display, what we're seeing about Judah, what we know of him, it should come with little surprise of what the description we have of his sons are. Okay? So what we know of Ur is very little other than that he was wicked. Wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord killed him. And this is one of the, one of the first of two overt actions taken by the Lord in Genesis 38. In verse 7, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. This leaves his wife widowed. And we'll return to her in a few minutes. But staying focused on this undetoured pursuit of evil, the next son, Onan, is no better. Because you see what he does? He, he takes what he wants, but does not give what is required of him. He takes what he wants, but does not give what is required of him. And this now shows the second overt act of the Lord in this chapter. In verse 10, he, Onan, did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. The end result, Tamar is now still a widow. And Judah's not liking the trend. He doesn't like the idea that he might lose his third son. He's becoming fearful. That somehow it is it's Tamar that's causing his sons to die. The, the bad outcome. And he thinks that might happen to Sheila as well. Why? Because he's afraid. No thought seems to cross his mind that his sons are, are wicked. And that the outcome that has come upon their lives is because of their actions. He shifts it. And he says, that, that can't be. It's, it's got to be Tamar. For some reason, it's completely obscured to him. So he sends Tamar back to her father's house to wait for Sheila. At least that's the pretense, to get to maturity. But what we see from the text is that's not his, his goal at all. He has no intention of ever dealing with Tamar properly. In Genesis 38, Judah is very caught up in this undetoured pursuit of his own evil desires. In all of this, it's playing out before us. He doesn't want to lose his youngest son. He doesn't want to take care of Tamar. He's under the pretense of providing protection for her. He says, go back to your father's house. But what he's effectively doing is banishing her forever to be a widow, to be in mourning, without offspring. And, And this is very contrary to the very nature of God in whom he was made to be like. For Judah is an image bearer of God, just as we all are. And instead of living for God and within the good designs God gave him, he follows a familiar pattern of sin. We're going to talk more about the designs of God, the good designs of God, after we get through these first two points, because they're really what counter Uh, some of what we're seeing here and and can be a a buffer to falling into these ways of thinking. But we're going to continue on and we're going to shift over to seeing what what Tamar is doing because she's undeterred in her desire to have her rights. 
to receive her rights. And Tamar is, of course, another central figure in this chapter, in this story. And she understands the stakes. She knows they're high. But she's still undetoured to receive her rights. Rights that have slipped devastatingly away from her. Her husband, Ur, the first one, whom we don't know other than that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, was struck dead. Being married to that kind of man could not have been a very pleasant experience for her. Then the secondborn, Onan, was willing to use her for sex, but not willing to provide for her what was expected. Again, he gets struck dead. That's all covered in verses 8 through 11, which we just read. And her father-in-law, he wants to exploit what's happening here. He doesn't really know for sure what's going on. He can't predict with accuracy that if, if Sheila is given to Tamar that he's going to die. But that's his concern, so he just effectively pushes her aside. Tamar was around this family well enough, or enough to know that she could play the prostitution card on her father-in-law and they would have some level of success. So think about that. That's, this is the family that, that her, her father allowed her to get married into, and, and now we're seeing this play out. But here, she's now holding out for the opportunity to have offspring, to be produced. And the only meaningful way that she should be able to have an offspring is by Sheila. That's what the culture had in, in store at that time would be for him to become mature and then to produce offspring through her. She's desperate. And I can understand why. Her dad probably doesn't want her back at his house. He's effectively transitioned her out of the house and over to another man. Her father-in-law doesn't want her to have her around. She wants her rights, and she sees no other way to get these rights other than to act in a desperate manner. And the stakes are extremely high. She plans to ensnare her father-in-law. And mind you, unless Judah has done some evangelizing about God Most High, which doesn't seem to be in his character, she's acting in accordance with the culture that she's been produced in. She's thinking about her poor and desperate situation and is willing to risk it all to get what she thinks she needs. Now I say that, but certainly God is thinking about her. God is thinking about her and thinking about his plan. He's thinking about how this is all going to work out. He's acting in a way to carry out his blessing upon all the nations. Because we've heard this language before. He's planning on blessing all the nations through the family line of Abram. Judah is an offspring of Abram, Abraham. And we're going to get to more details on that in our last point. But the Lord is undetoured by the sin, our sin, the sin that's here, because he's dealt with it all in Christ Jesus. But Tamar is desperate. That's what we read about in verses 13 through 14. This is, this is desperation. She says, or after she hears about where her father-in-law is going, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments 
and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She has a clue as to what's happening, and so in desperation, she can't sit back and wait any longer. She's convinced that Judah will not give her Sheila to be his, uh, give her over to Sheila to be a wife. Very cunningly, she does as Proverbs states. She reduces Judah basically to a loaf of bread, willing to give herself over for what he thinks is merely a young goat. But in reality, what she wants is an heir. What she wants is an heir. And not just an heir by any, anyone, but by the man who has authority over the sentence that would be brought down upon her. A sentence that would be her very life. So even before the law is codified, before God delivers the law to Moses, which is more equitable once that comes into play, what we see here is there's a law of the land. That where they live, there's already this, this common law of the land which forbids such actions, forbids this type of fornification. And let me emphasize, it's especially uh, for the women. It's not, very evil, it's not a very even playing field. And we run into this similar disparity to this day. How many times have you heard people just dismiss young men? Well, boys will be, be boys. Let them go off and do their thing. But then, on the other hand, people say, well, the young ladies have to be, you know, more ladylike, uh, you know, withhold themselves to a higher standard. And that, of course, is not keeping in God's good design. And again, we're going to touch on God's good design here in a little while. And we have looked at it previously in the scriptures. For we know the proper fulfillment for sex is through marriage. We dedicated a good deal of time towards this as elders a while back, publishing a statement on marriage and sexual identity. Some years back we did that because we knew it was a place of attack. It's been a place of attack since the very beginning. It has been an effective place of attack. And this is a place of increasing murkiness in our culture. But God's word is very clear on it. This doesn't mean that we that, that just because we know it, that we're faithful to abide by God's design. But our failures, now listen, our failures in this area do not corrupt what God has made to be very good. Our failures do not corrupt what God has made to be very good. What he has made is still very good. It's our sins that corrupt it. What he has made is intrinsically of great value because it's by his design. He's the creator. He's made it good. And we, we dash ourselves to pieces by going against his good design. And the remedy to our brokenness after dashing ourselves to pieces in this manner brought ab- that's brought about through our sinning against God and others and our failures is to apply the gospel. It always is. Whenever we, we run into this type of brokenness, it's always to apply the gospel. We exercise confession. We exercise repentance and forgiveness and commit ourselves to following after God. 
Time and time again, this, this comes up. And I don't see the devil's attacks on this area of life diminishing, for he has wrecked havoc on humanity since the fall by attacking us in this area. And it's before us here today in the text. It's right here before us, and we remain continually vulnerable to attacks here. And every family is impacted by sexual malpractice in some way. Some more than others, but every family is attacked. It's a widespread attack. And if they're happening to you, you're not alone. I'm going to say that again. If it's happening to you, you are not alone. The answer is always to turn back to what God has created as good and right. It is the proper and safe place. It's God's good design. And I'm not appealing for us to do this in our own strength, because we can't do this in our own strength. I'm appealing, rather, to God's good design and saying what he has designed, we uphold as good. And where we have gone away from it, we repent and we return to it. Tamar was desperate. And she deliberately went outside the normal standards for sexual purity in her time. And in large part, those sexual standards were in accordance with God's design. Now this this oddity, this what's called the Leverite marriage, which is the brother-in-law taking the sister-in-law and conceiving, is foreign to us. So try not to get hung up on that aspect, okay? But what she was doing here with giving herself over as a prostitute to her father-in-law was opening herself up to receive the death penalty. She knew this was a high-stakes gamble. If her plan failed, she would be put to death. But she was desperate and attempted it anyway. And the result was a child. A child produced by Judah. In her womb, her and her child, because of this high-stakes gamble, could be subjected to the death penalty, to being burned. In our scriptures, in verses 24 and 25, after this has all taken place, there's a result. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out. Let her be burned. She was desperate. She, she made this gamble. And as we will look at this next verse in a moment, once we see Judah respond to what she says, he can tell. Like this, this was something that I instigated. I started by my own actions. And he admits in, in verse 26, when she says, identify these things. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. So this was Tamar, undeterred to receive her rights. 
going about this plan in a very desperate way. These are the first two major points of the sermon. But in all of this, we now are going to shift to see that God is undetoured to direct his glory. He can direct even what we have before us, which is quite messy, for his glory. And, and in stark contrast to the undeterred evil pursuits of man and the undeterred pursuits of one's rights is God's good design. He is the creator God. He creates things good. And we're going to look at two of his designs in particular. We're going to look at his design for the family. And we're going to look at his manifested desire to care for the needy, the poor and the needy. This is a character of God. This is at his very heart. And we're going to begin with the family, which is the first institution that God established. And it was the family, creating the man first and then the woman to be his helper, each of them an integral, integral to the form and function of the family. It's amazing that when God made us, he did so in his likeness. So that we would rule over his creation. He gave us a job to do. To rule over his creation. The fish of the sea and the, the birds of the air. And the, the creatures that dwelt upon the ground. To be his vice regents. To enter into dominion over God's creation. And Adam and Eve and then us by way of heredity were blessed by the Lord. Blessed by the Lord and told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to make an abundance of good things to come from the land as we exercise dominion over it. The original man and the original woman were designed to make more image bearers as well through their good and proper sexual union as given by God to be experienced together in the covenant bonds of marriage. Genesis 38 is pointed to many times in ways to attempt to, in a ways to attempt to explain sexual sin. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but rather the focus needs to fundamental, fundamentally be on the breakdown of God's good design. Onan in particular was denying the shared aspect of sex, the sexual act. He, he had a responsibility under their cultural practices to produce an offspring for his deceased brother through his sister-in-law. However, it doesn't appear that he wanted that type of competition. You see, if, if there's no heir by the firstborn, where do you think that inheritance will go? Well, it's going to go to Onan and his offspring. So if he takes this responsibility, he's basically saying, well, that means I have to give up more of my share. And he didn't want to do that. So he selfishly, instead, he just takes the sexual pleasure of Tamar, but doesn't give her what is necessary to produce an offspring, to produce a child. And he does this repeatedly. The language in the text says that this is an ongoing thing, a direct violation of what God had intended. And not that all sexual activity needs to produce a birth, mind you, but to only take take of it selfishly and take from another is not what God intended it to be for. 
It's a working together. It's supposed to be a coming together to, prom to promote flourishing and for enjoyment. And this is at least one of the aspects that Onan is detested for by the Lord, and it results in his death. Clearly, we can get wrapped up in taking from another in a similar manner. That can be us. We can, we can fall into that trap. But the remedy is always to reform to God's good design. When we go in error, we take a look at what, what did God create? What did God intend? Where did I, I step outside of that? And then we re reform ourselves back to God's good design. The other good design that we have to look at, characteristically in God's nature, is this desire to care for the poor and the needy. Usually in the scriptures, it's care for the widow and the orphan and the sojourner that's among you. Here we have Tamar. She is a widow. And our God is a good God, and he wants to see provision occurring. He is even called throughout the scriptures the God that provides. The Lord will provide. And the family itself, which we just looked at as part of God's good design, is a way to provide. It is, it is something that holds things together. And in the land of Canaan, at the time of Judah, this would have been very important. To keep things from becoming corrupted by sin would to be relying on the family. The family would help provide what is needed in terms of a, a social structure. Provision for those who are less likely to be able to go out and make a living could be part of a family, and they could be cared for, held together. And even back then, as part of the social fabric, we know that the family is integral to our social fabric now. It's still what holds societies together. It was of massive significance at the time of Judah that families would honor their ties. And this was what was promulgated by this very strange practice that I mentioned of the Leverite marriage. It eventually ends up in the law as given to God. If you want to look it up, it's in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. And that's what's being described here, even before the law is given. It was part of their, their culture. Part of their way of honoring these ties. Where, in this case, Judas instructs a secondborn to provide this function for the deceased brother. And again, try not to get hung up on the strangeness of that. For this woman, the principle behind it is this woman has lost her way of significantly being a part of the society that she found herself in. Because in order for her to be a part, she was supposed to be married and have children. Now, she's not married and she doesn't have any children. And she's no longer a virgin, so she's not, li not likely to be given into marriage again. And she's not technically under her father's house, but that's where Judah sends her back to. And clearly, Judah doesn't really want her welcome in his house because he wants to grow in abundance. And she is proving to somehow be tied to the death of two of his sons. So the right thing to do for, for her, to re put her back into a place of significance, was to allow her to have an offspring. For that to come forth from her womb so the family line of the firstborn could be brought 
forward. And what would essentially happen is his inheritance would pass then to her in trust, waiting for the, the young son to, to rise up and take over. And this was how the family would have been cared for. This is how the widow would have been able to have a child and then fit back in to society. So for us, as a family, as a church, as families co- collected together to form a church, we're Christians and we're, we're bound together in, in these types of ties ourselves. And not that we would provide in the same manner, remember that just the principle, but we have responsibilities as well. When we know that someone is falling through the cracks, if you will, the poor and the needy, the orphan and the widow, any of these categories, and we have a way to bring them in, as Christians, we have been shown the love of Christ. We know love better than anyone should know love. So that's why we should be the ones that then extend an outreach to those that we can tell. Like, they're hurting. They need a place. They need a family. They need some significant way to plug back in to society. And this is, again, part of God's good design. And we can exercise that as families and as a church. And we should. And churches throughout the world should be doing the same thing. That's keeping in, God, in with God's character. And in this last section that, that we're in, I know this chapter seems out of place, but there are some verses here that we're going we're gonna to look at that specifically spell out that in spite of sinful man or sinful woman, God is undetoured to direct his glory. One of the most beautiful lessons we are learning from our course through Genesis is that God's will is accomplished. That's one of the most beautiful lessons we learn as we go through Genesis is that God's will is accomplished. Now, his chosen ones, clearly sinners. But over time, as God continues to pursue them, they conform themselves more and more to his likeness. And they they. They conform themselves to faithful obedience. His chosen ones respond in faith. I'm not saying we have a real clear picture of that in Genesis 38. But overall, that's what we see is happening. But what we do have a clear indication of is that God is directing all of this. He's undetoured. He's directing it all for his glory. He is directing this for his glory. And I want you to see that as we read verses 27 through 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, and the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So this is the end of this very unlikely chapter as we have a birth narrative. We have a a story of a baby being born, two babies being born by Judah through Tamar 
two sons are born. And significantly, Perez. Perez is born. If you were here with us when we studied through the book of Ruth, maybe that name is, is jumping back out at you. Because in Ruth, there was similar circumstances. There was not only one widow, but there was Naomi. She was widowed. Two daughter-in-laws, Ruth in particular, who travels with her. Two widows, no brother-in-laws. But they still needed to be redeemed. They still needed this to happen somehow. And so they had a kinsman redeemer, Boaz. Boaz enters into the picture, and then there's a child produced. I'm going to read just the very end of Ruth chapter 4, because Perez comes up in that lineage, and you'll see the significance of it. In Ruth 4, beginning in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. In Matthew 1, the gospel starts out with a lineage. So do other gospels. These same names are there. Because the significance of this chapter is that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is going to come into the world. God is working in Genesis 38 for the long game. He knows what he is going to do to redeem mankind. And he does it in the midst of all of this just unprecedented like pursuit of other things. God's directing it. He's saying, I, I got this. I'm going to take control. I've dealt with sin once and for all in my son Jesus, and I'm going to make a way for the Redeemer to come. So why is chapter 38 of Genesis in our Bible? Because the whole story of the Bible is about God redeeming us unto himself. From beginning to end, that's what the Bible is about. Our sin has separated us from God. And sinfulness just drips from the, from the pages of Genesis 38 and, and the lines that we read in this chapter. But praise God, church, that it's not by our effort that God brings about redemption. It's not by our works. And it's, it's very much in spite of our lowly attempts and sometimes even our wickedness that God goes about undetoured to direct all things for his glory. For what we need is not temporary provision. That comes through family welfare, a welfare system, and that's what Tamar was seeking. She wanted that, that temporary relief. She wanted to fit back into the significance of her family. She wanted an heir to bring her back into that, that fold. And clearly that was of great value to her, so much so that she was willing to, to risk everything for it. And we're going to see that Sustainment is beautiful for, remember back in 37, Joseph's been sent ahead. Joseph's been sent ahead to Egypt. Why? So that he can prepare for the famine, the severe famine that's coming and, and produce enough food to sustain life for the nations surrounding Egypt, including his own family. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. That's significant. And God is at work in that. 
and he's doing that. But more significant is how is God going to fulfill his promise? A promise that he started back in Genesis 3.15. How is he going to bring forth from the seed of the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent? That vile creature that came into the creation, the new creation, and was used to tempt Adam and Eve, to tempt them. And, and sin entered in because of his involvement. And subsequently, every human ever since has suffered because of the lie that entered in. Suffered. But the promised one, the one that Jesus, the one that was promised is Jesus. That's the plan of God from the beginning, to undo the ravages of sin. To undo the ravages of sin by taking the sin of the world upon himself. And giving his righteousness to all who place their faith in him. It is my great cry and my plea as we go through a chapter such as this that you would see that God is at work directing. He is not detoured by our sinfulness. He has overcome that by Christ. And what he wants is to say, he wants you to say, I'm, I'm not going to try in my shallowness to use deception to get what I want. I'm, I'm not going to resort to try to look better through desperation just to, to make something happen. Those are traps that we can fall into using deception or by acts of desperation. But when we fall into those traps, we're not revering God. We're not revering God to work as he promises that he will work, and we're robbing him of honor and glory. We sin against him when we fall into these traps. In Genesis 38, the clear message, no matter how deceptive or how desperate we might be, is that the Lord is undetoured by our sin. Because he has dealt with it once and for all through Christ Jesus. Christ who was promised. God continued to answer that promise. In this passage, in the passage we just were spending time looking through. Through the child Perez, fathered by Judah. For the continued line of the promise to go forward from him. Church, this chapter does not belong in some bygone era just to be casually glanced at as a curiosity. It's inextricably linked to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the way you work. It is so obvious if we slow down and, and take a look at the scriptures that you make a way. You are undetoured by us in our sinfulness, in our pursuit of that which doesn't belong to you. If we are yours, you take care of us, even when we are unaware. You direct us, you guide us, you, you lead us on in this life. And when we are convicted, when we see one of your good designs, and that our life is not in alignment with your word or your natural and created way, we repent. We reform ourselves. We are sanctified. Lord, the only way that is possible is by the completed work of Christ. 
And we thank you for what you've continued to reveal to us through Genesis, that you will bring about Jesus. We know you do. He is our Savior. We know you did. He is the one we serve. We know that you are not done with this place, for we are still here, and it is Christ whom we serve. Lord, may you receive all glory through our gathering here today as we give ourselves over now to the participation of the Lord's Supper. We ask God Almighty that you would remind us of the the tremendous work done. Begin from the first day of creation and before the foundations of the earth were even laid. You've had a plan to redeem us unto yourself. Let us celebrate that as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.